Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 3rd, 2016. The share ID for Friday, January 1st, is 8311. That's 8311. This morning, A Vision for You presents, It's the New Year, but the problem is timeless. The doctor's opinion, which serves as a preface to the book Alcoholics Anonymous, is the foundation of the whole big book. This section may simply seem to be a helpful introductory note, but without it, the entire book doesn't make sense. An essential part of the beginning of the recovery process is the understanding of what the big book calls the allergy of the body. With us today to present It's the New Year, but the problem is timeless, is Harlan, a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is devoted to the 12-step design for living, which of course includes carrying this message of recovery. And with great pleasure and delight, I welcome Harlan to the line this morning. Harlan, star one to unmute. Hey, welcome, Leah. Welcome, all visionaries. I was uh, I was muted there for a second, and then I fixed it. Can you hear me okay? I can. Thank all you. All right. We're going to talk this morning about step number one. We're going to hopefully clear up some misconceptions about step number one, and we're going to study the doctor's opinion. The doctor's opinion in the first edition of the big book was on page one, and then after some soul searching, they moved it to the Roman numeral section because they wanted the body of the book to be written by alcoholics for alcoholics. And Dr. Silkworth was not an alcoholic, but he was very, very instrumental in everything that we do, everything we endeavor in here in Overeaters Anonymous. He was not the first person to consider alcoholism as an illness, gluttony as an illness, going back 6,000 years, all the way back to King Solomon in the Old Testament, in the book of Solomon. Uh, Solomon uh, writes that he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no cure for it. In England, right around the time of the 1640s, there was a doctor, and his name was Dr. Trotter. And Dr. Trotter believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it, and he had no cure for it. One of the men who was the, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, he later became the first Surgeon General. He was appointed by George Washington, the first president, obviously. And his name was Dr. Benjamin Rush. And if you ever come to Chicago, where I was born and raised, there's a street called Rush Street, so named for him. And Dr. Rush, in 1790, he published a paper in which he believed that alcoholism was an illness, but he couldn't prove it and he had no cure for it. Dr. William Duncan Silkworth was a neurologist in New York City and in October, October 29, 1929, Black Tuesday, the beginning of the Great Depression, Dr. Silkworth lost everything he had when the stock market crashed. And in November of 1929, he went to work for his very good friend, Charles Towns. Charlie Towns 
owned and operated what was then the most preeminent hospital for the treatment of alcoholism and drug addiction in the world, and it was called appropriately the Towns Hospital in New York. And between 1929 and 1934, Dr. Silkworth, actually 33, Dr. Silkworth observed many, many drug addicts and alcoholics coming into the town's hospital. Now, these were primarily men. Not all men, but they were primarily male. And he would fix these guys up, and they would leave the hospital, and some of them would never return. They had learned their lesson. They left with their tail between their legs. They had been beat down by a serious a confrontation with alcohol or drugs, and they never returned. But, and this is a big but, there were a group of these men, about 10% of these guys, who came in and went out and came in and went out and came in and went out. And every single time they came back, they were in worse deplorable condition than they had entered the hospital the time before. And so he noticed that there was something different about these men. There was something that set them apart. And he started to make observations and he drew conclusions about these men. Let's take a look in the fourth edition or the third, or the second, or the first. But let's take a look on page XXV in the fourth edition, and let's take a look at the doctor's opinion, and let's see if we can't form a more strong pedestal, a stronger pedestal on which we will build the rest of our program. And at the end of this session, if you will take this journey with me over the next hour and, and plus, you will have taken step one because steps one, two, and three are not working steps. They are conclusions of the mind. And if you will open yourself up to the conclusion of the mind pointed to in this text, you will have taken step one. Let's take a look. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. Now, again, we're talking about the town's hospital as being the hospital, and we're talking about William D. Silkworth as being the person that, that's the well-known doctor. To whom it may concern, <clears throat> excuse me, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. Let's stop right there when we see this word hopeless. Because in order for me to work these steps, in order for me to come to the conclusion that I am out of ideas and I am going to stop looking for ways to manipulate this program, to manipulate a food plan, to manipulate the rest of the steps, to manipulate my life so that I can eat everything I want and still be thin is going to be a conclusion I'm going to have to come to by suffering an enormous amount of pain and degradation and loneliness. Because I came into this program very desperate. 
I came into this program very beaten down. I was born into this illness. And when I say I was born into it, I didn't get it because my mother was mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities. And you could never know which one was going to manifest at any given time. My mother could be a screaming, raving lunatic one minute, a three-year-old the next minute, or a totally together person the next minute. As a matter of fact, when I was born in Chicago, she didn't even know she was pregnant. And my father, my father was a good guy, but he was 54 years old on the day that I was born. And my father was beat down by life. My father was the sole survivor of murder and mayhem at the turn of the 20th century in Russia. The anti-Semitism was so through the ceiling that they came in and murdered his entire family and he escaped because he did what he was supposed to do. He ran to a certain point and he was the only one that got away that night that they came in and he had tremendous survivor's guilt. If you've never seen your father cry, I've seen my father cry thousands of times. And this, this affected me. This affected me. And they would scream and yell at each other. They would show their affection for one another with pots and pans flying through the air. And I'm growing up in this. And my mother, she used me as her husband, and my father used me as his wife, not sexually. But my mother would tell me every single day, I hate your father. The only reason I live here is because of you. And my father would tell me every single day, I hate your mother. The only reason I live here is because of you. And I'm four years old, and all I wanted to know is, is Huckleberry Hound going to get away with what he's, what he's cooking up? Are Yogi Bear and Boo Boo going to get away with the picnic basket because Ranger Smith is coming around the corner? I'm not one of these people that came upon 20 and 30 and 40 years of age and all of a sudden discovered I was, I was overweight. I have been in the trenches with food and weight from the very beginning of my life. Every single day, food and weight were at the top of all issues. I was 335 pounds as a senior in high school. By the time I was in college, I was 500 pounds. I came into this program at five, 600 pounds. I left and came back at 700 pounds. I was emasculated by this illness, emasculated emotionally, emasculated physically. I, I couldn't wear underpants. I had towels shoved between layers of flab. I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand. I couldn't lay flat and breathe. I couldn't sleep in a bed. My bed was broken, but I couldn't sleep in a bed. I had to sleep in a chair, and I couldn't sit in a chair for very long without falling asleep. I peed in my pants incessantly. I, I crapped in my pants incessantly. I had one or two pairs of pants. I stunk. My life was a mess. I lied when the truth would have been better. I wrote bad checks anyone, to anyone dumb enough to take them. I ruined my credit. And this disease came in and ransacked me at a very, very early age. This disease hit me like a tornado. Was I hopeless? You bet. And the minute I think I have an idea of how I'm going to do this on my own, my way, 
I'm dead. Because food is unrelenting. The illness is unrelenting, not the food. The, re- the disease is unrelenting. We're going to learn a little later on today that food is not the problem. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. We're going to learn in Bill's story. We're not going to cover that today, but we're going to learn in Bill's story that Bill is going to be hospitalized in the town's hospital three times. He acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery, and this is going to be the Oxford Group steps, the Oxford Group tenants that are going to be introduced to him by his good friend, Ebby. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. So when I'm reading this book and I'm, I'm looking at this book, I'm not talking about the experiences here of one man. And we talk about Bill Wilson wrote the big book. That's not, I I don't believe that for five seconds. I believe this book was written by God Almighty himself. And I will always believe that. And whether you believe it or not is not the issue. Bill Wilson was 43 years old when this book was written with three and a half years of sobriety. I've got 17 years of abstinence and I've lost over 500 pounds in this program. I'm lucky if I can send out a coherent text message on my phone. But this book and its contents have returned more people back to life from alcoholism, drug addiction, gambling, sex addiction, food addiction, you name it, than all other methods combined in the 6,000-year history of men getting up in the morning and women getting up in the morning and saying, what are we going to do about this? Do I believe that Bill wrote the book? I believe he penned it, yeah. I believe he scribed it, yeah, I do. But I believe this book was written by God. And these 100 people were the voices of God. That's what I believe. You don't have to believe that, but that's what I do believe, and I will always believe that. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. I was in Weight Watchers. I was a king in Weight Watchers. I was a king in Tops. I used methods back to childhood, lose weight with age. Remember those, those brown candies, A-Y-D-S? You'd be hard to market that product today, huh? Metricale, Tops. My, my doctor put me on diet pills, put me on heavy amphetamines at and nine years old, 10 years old, they changed them. But in, at nine and 10 years old, I was doing heavy-duty amphetamines to try to lose weight, and it worked. But when those pills crashed, so did I. So did I. You sleep about 15 minutes a month. The temples in my head would go ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Now, look, I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter, but I'm getting in fights at school. I can't hear what people are saying to me because I can't listen as fast as my brain is going. I'm saying the same thing 300 times, and I'm in my brain going, why do you keep saying that? Why do you keep saying that? That speed had a nasty effect on me. But these are the methods, and I'm going to assume something, that if the methods you had tried before had been successful, 
you wouldn't be on the phone now. You'd be doing something else. You'd be reading, reading the newspaper or doing God knows what. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, M.D. Now, if you're looking at a book, which chances are good you are, where it says William D. Silkworth, let's appreciate for just a minute where we come from and the stigma associated with this entire thing. The big book was written in, excuse me, uh, 38 and 39. It came out in April of 39. It was written primarily actually 37, 38, and was published, printed in April of 39. So 37 and 38 is really more accurate. But let's take a look at the stigma. William D. Silkworth was asked by Bill Wilson to write this opinion, and he said, I will do it, but I will give you one condition. Don't you dare put my name in there. Now, the reason he said that is because the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, had not yet accepted alcoholism as an illness. Now, in the 10th printing of the first edition, as they were going to print the 11th. In 1949, Bill's psychiatrist, Harry Tebow, presented a paper in 1949, and the American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, accepted alcoholism as an illness. And Dr. Silkworth in 1949 said, okay, Bill, you can put my name in there now. So that's why we have it, and he died in 1951. But William Duncan Silkworth remains our great medical benefactor. He was an angel of God who treated these people from the depths of the gutter. He was an absolute angel, and we would not have our program today were it not for him and the work that he did. So when we look at Bill and we look at Bob as the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's true. But there were many, many other people who had major roles in the foundation of what we are about today in 2016 in Overeaters Anonymous. And William Duncan Silkworth's shadow looms large. Because without his opinion, without the work he did, we wouldn't have the Overeaters Anonymous program that we have today. Continuing, the physician, I'm on page XXVI or 26 in Roman numerals. The physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe. Now, we... we Oh, readers, we alcoholics, we would, I'm not an alcoholic, but people who are addicted are immature, perfectionist rebels. So we want to kind of go our own way. Well, here's the word must, must believe, and the word must appears in here in the book 72 times. That the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. This is groundbreaking because this is the very first time in human history that anybody published anything that said that there was a physical component to this illness. Up to that point, it was considered strictly a lack of, of, uh, of sense, a form of insanity, a form of laziness, 
a form of stupidity, and those are the things that you, if you're anything like me, heard all your life. Just push yourself away from the table. Just eat less. Don't vomit. Don't purge. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's all nonsense, and we're going to get into the whys and the wherefores of the powerless condition in just a little bit. But we must believe, now this is a must, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy, we're going to come back to that word in just a second, so make note of it, to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Now, let's take a look at what he's telling us here. Now, this word allergy, when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, at the Orchard Mental Health Center in Skokie, Illinois, just outside where I lived on the north side of Chicago on February 2nd, 1979. There were people in that group, and one of them I think is uh, on the line this morning, although I'm not 100% sure she is, but there were people in that group that said to me, don't eat Reese's peanut butter cups, you're allergic to them. And I scratched my head and said to myself, wait a minute, I'm not allergic to Reese's peanut butter cups. I've been eating thousands of them over many years. I don't break out in a rash. I don't have hives. I don't sneeze. I don't have itchy, watery eyes when I eat Reese's peanut butter cups. What the heck are you people talking about? And their response to me was, well, just don't eat Reese's peanut butter cups. And I thought to myself, maybe it's because I break out in blubber. I don't know. But then one day, a while later, it bothered me so much that I went to a source of information that never failed me. Some of you are old enough to remember dictionaries. We had a dictionary, and I had one, and it was red. I don't know where it is today. It's been many years. But I went to the dictionary, and I looked up this word allergy, and I found a definition of allergy that fit me perfectly. It said, an adverse, abnormal reaction to food, beverage, or substance. Adverse means it's harmful. Abnormal means most people don't react the way I do. Now, taking into consideration that it says in this paragraph, it explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. My reaction to Reese's peanut butter cups is adverse. It's very harmful to me. Reese's peanut butter cups have done horrible things in my life. But, and Reese's peanut butter cups also, when they hit my system, they set me up with an actual physical craving for more of the same. So when he says it explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account, we take a look at some of the normal temperate eaters. And you know them, and you've been with them, and you've probably been tempted to test power tools on their skulls. They're the type of people that when the food comes to the table when you're eating in a restaurant, the first reaction they say is, 
oh, my God, who could eat so much food? Or, oh, I'm going to have to take half of this home in a box. Can you get me a box? And I'm sitting there thinking, move your hand. I'll stick my fork in your eye and shut you up. Because in my body, that food will set me off with an actual physical craving for more of the same. The more I eat, the more I want. The more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, and it is just endless. And those are the things that we cannot account for. In a normal person's body, the more they eat, the less hungry or the less desirous for food they become. Their desire for food diminishes the more they eat. Not so with me and people like me. Maybe you're one of them. The more I eat, the more I want. And that's that word allergy. And that physical allergy I was born with, I will die with, and there is absolutely nothing I can do to alter it except stop, cease ingesting foods that trigger it. Let's continue. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as an altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached as he then has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. The doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to be of paramount importance to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this after many years' experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on the subject, which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. Now we're going to do the next paragraph twice. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultramodern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. Now let's remember for just a second that Bill Silkworth, William Silkworth, is a doctor. He's a man of medicine. He's a man of science. So let's, with that in mind, repeat the paragraph. It says here, we doctors have realized for a long time that some form of spiritual awakening was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond medicine's conception. What with medicine's ultramodern standards, Medicine's scientific approach to everything. Medicine is perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of God that lie outside our medical knowledge. What he's telling you there is he cannot help you. He knows what's wrong with you. He can't help you. I don't know how to fix a car. I'm not a very handy guy. I know what to do when the car is broken. Call the motor club, go to a shop, go to a repair place, get the car fixed and pay for the repair and then leave. I don't know how to fix a car. If you're stuck on the side of the road, I can let you use my cell phone. 
if it's freezing cold or boiling hot, I can let you stay in my car for a minute to either have the air conditioning on you or the heat on you, but I do, know, I do not know how to fix your car. Dr. Silkworth is telling you here he can give you some comfort, but he doesn't have any way of helping us. Now let's continue. Many years ago, the leading contributor, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas which he put into practical application at once. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here. And with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, many of them are amazing. The unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power, notice it's capitalized, which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the spiritual awakening. He's talking about God. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be free from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. Now, I'm going to say something here that Dr. Silkworth is going to tell us three times in the doctor's opinion, and this is going to be the most unpopular thing I say here this morning. I have to put down the food. I'm going to say it twice more. I have to put down the food. I have to put down the food. And some of you are going to call me later today because I'm going to give you my phone number, or you're going to email me today and say, I'm so-and-so from such-and-such, and I can't put down the food, and if I'm powerless, how am I going to put down the food? Yes, you are powerless. We're going to get into the more specific angle of that powerlessness here in just a minute. But you are not helpless. You have a phone. By reason that you are on this line, you have a phone. You have a way of contacting someone else, even if it's just to go to their house and knock on the door and say, I'm a compulsive overeater and I feel like eating a whole cake. You are powerless. You are not helpless. Far from it. In 2016, it is easier to access recovery than it has ever been in the history of planet Earth. Something has to change. If nothing changes, nothing changes. If you do what you did, you will get what you got. I have to put down the food or I will not have a spiritual awakening as the result of anything. We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit, found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Let's take a look at this again. We can never use, safely use food in any form at all, your binge foods. And once having formed a habit, found they cannot break it, dieting after dieting after dieting. Once having lost their self-confidence, 
Of course I lost my self-confidence. Every dream I ever dreamed for myself was annihilated in the face of a force that I could not reckon with, I could not understand, and didn't feel that I deserved. Why me? About 50 years ago, there was a place in Chicago, maybe more, 55 years ago, there was a place on Devon Avenue. I grew up on the north side of Chicago, and the place was Mr. Junior's. It was a clothing store, and they sold really cool clothes there, and I wanted to buy clothes from Mr. Junior. That was my dream when I was about 10, 11, 12. I wanted to look like the other kids. I wanted to wear Levi's and Madras shirts, and I wanted to look like the other boys. And I was wearing clothes that went out of style, during the Great Depression. My father had to take me to a place on Lawrence and Kedzie in the old neighborhood and buy me clothes that the 65-year-old men were wearing. Oftentimes, because of my obese condition, I had two, three pairs of pants, all identically in color, all identical in style. So it looked like I was wearing the same pair of pants for years at a time, shirts that had gone out of style 50 years before. You know how you hear in the 60s you want to dance to your own drummer and you know, malarkey? I wanted to look like the other guys. And I've had many, many different kinds of dreams since then. And most of them were annihilated in the face of this. So, of course, I lost confidence because I knew one thing. I couldn't trust myself. Eventually, I'm going to eat. And as much as you would pump me up, you know, you'd give me a pep talk why I should lose weight. And I knew why I should lose weight, but I knew in the back of my mind, it could be a day, it could be a week, it could be a month, it could be six months, it could be whatever. Eventually, I know I'm going to cave because that's what I always do. And I let me down. I let me down, but I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't get it. We're going to get it in just a minute, I hope. <clears throat> Excuse me. Their reliance upon things human. Money won't fix it. Fame won't fix it. Things that are of this world won't fix it. But I became convinced that if she would only, or if he would only, or if they would only stick to my script, if the Republicans or the Democrats or the White Sox or the Cubs or the Bears, if all these entities would just stick to my script, life would be fantastic. Not true. Not true. In Yiddish, there's an expression. I'll teach it to you this morning. It's always something. There's always going to be a protagonist in my life. There's always going to be some situation that I wish were different. Their reliance upon things human. Sometimes we think about money and fame. I'm going to give you some names to consider. If you don't know who they are, you're too young, Google them. Karen Carpenter, Jim Gandolfini, President William Howard Taft, Chris Farley, John Candy, Mama Cass Elliott. These were people at the top of their game. These were people that had it all. And they couldn't beat this illness. Couldn't beat it with a stick. And it took them. 
This disease is mind over matter. It doesn't mind hooking you up to a dialysis machine. It doesn't mind cutting your leg off. And it, you don't matter. Only God is bigger than this illness. Their problems pile up on them, continuing, and become astonishingly difficult to solve. How could my problems not have piled up on me when I never considered solving them because I couldn't get past eating and not eating, eating and not eating? How was I going to solve problems? How was I going to do my homework? More than, more than dozens of times, I would be sitting and copying long-term assignments in school out of the World Book Encyclopedia the morning they were due because I played sick and I had to do my long-term assignment that morning, and it was always late. Why? I couldn't get past eating and not eating, eating and not eating. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. No matter what people did to bribe you, what they did to browbeat you, no matter what they did to convince you or me, nothing worked. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices that input from others. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. What is Overeaters Anonymous in 2016? Let's think about this for just a minute. What is Overeaters Anonymous? Why are you on the phone right now? Why am I on the phone right now? Because the message must have depth and weight. You know, not long ago, I had, I had my hips replaced. Not at the same time, but I've had two hip replacements and a knee replacement. I desperately need the other one done. But I had a hip, the first time I ever had a hip replacement, I was at the hospital, and they show you this little cartoon of what they're going to do, and they tell you what to expect and what could go wrong. You know, it's, it's the usual mumbo-jumbo. And then this guy kind of bounced into the meeting, and he looked great. He was, he was youthful. He was vibrant. He was you know, he was jumping around. He's probably a guy in his 40s, 50s, something like that. He said, I had my hip replaced here at this hospital. Now he has my attention because he had been through what I was going through. We speak and understand the language of the heart. What did Bill bring Bob that night at the Cyberling Gatehouse in 1935? Did he bring them such great information? Yeah, he told them about the allergy. Bob didn't know about that. He told them about the twist of the mind. Bob didn't seem to know much about that. But why did they stay up there for five hours? Because Bill brought Bob something much more important than information. He brought him identification, one to the other. Many of you were, in the con were at the convention that we had, the beautiful convention in Virginia Beach. And there was a camaraderie there of people that have never met one another. Most of us have never met each other. Some of us have, but few have. Because we spoke and understand the universal language of the heart. Why is it so magical to go to a meeting? Because you hear your insanity coming out of someone else's mouth. And when you hear that, you know you're home. For the first time in your life, there are people that understand. And I believe that these thoughts about food, these beliefs that I had, these fears, <clears throat> these angers, these things, I believe that they were secret unto me. And many of you did too. 
And then we came into Overeaters Anonymous. And we found a fellowship because of identification. One to the other. And that's why sponsorship is so important. And that's why the fellowship is so important. Because we have the depth and the weight to pass this message. Don't take that lightly. It is so important. Continuing on, in nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. If any feel that a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. Let them stand with us a while on the firing line. See the tragedies, the despairing lives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement we feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. And that altruism comes out of the Oxford group, that service. We can't get into it now, but we'll get into it when we do Bill's story, how we came to be out of the Oxford group movement, which was an altruistic service-based movement now, let's take a look at the next paragraph. But before we do, let's clear up some misconceptions. Now, the first misconception that I want to clear up this morning is a misconception that many of us have had our entire lives, that food is the problem, not so. I have friends, and so do you, that are very heavy eaters. They eat from time to time. They eat compulsively. I could go to a buffet. I live about a mile. In, I'm in, I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I live about a mile from what is called Resort Row. The number one industry here is tourism. And I live about a mile from Resort Row. And there are buffets all up and down Scottsdale Road. Massive ones. And I could go there with certain friends of mine, and they could out-eat me. They eat from time to time compulsively. I am a compulsive overeater. Now, eat compulsively, compulsive overeater, gee, they sound the same. They sound very not so. They are worlds apart. If I went there with one of my friends from Chicago, he would out-eat me, but he wouldn't think about eating again until Tuesday or Wednesday. I would be eating candy and cookies and cake and things on my way home from the buffet at the convenience store that I could pull into. I am a compulsive overeater. Let's define it and let's look at some of these things. For a compulsive overeater, food is never the problem. What is the problem? The problem is that every human being on the face of this earth has human emotions. Everybody has happiness, sadness, jealousy, guilt, shame, fear, remorse. Every human being has these emotions. And in a normal human being, when these emotions rise to a certain level, they can be managed or tamped down quite effectively by
by drinking a glass of wine, walking the dog, going to the gym, taking a walk, having sex, yelling, listening to your favorite song on the radio, whatever that person does to deal with those emotions, it works quite effectively, and those emotions do not linger in them long enough to create a problem. Not so with us. When these emotions start coming up to a certain level, they will knock on the door of the brain, and the brain will signal something to an area in the emotional side of the brain that we call the mental twist. And the mental twist says, I've got this, I've got this, I'm going to have him eat Milky Way bars or Kit Kats. And Kit Kats were always one of my favorites. It's a chocolate-covered cookie. How can you go wrong? I mean, come on. But anyway, the brain will send out the signal that I should eat Kit Kat bars. But the intelligent side of the brain says, no way. We've been single now. We got divorced five and a half years ago. We want to look good. We want to feel good. We'd like to go on a date once in a while. You've got to be thin to attract girls. You better not eat that Kit Kat bar, buddy. And the emotional side of the brain says, eat the Kit Kat bar. And any time there is a conflict between the emotional side of my brain and the intelligent side of my brain, the emotional side will win every time. Now, why does my brain send me off to eat Kit Kat bars? Because Kit Kat bars became the answer to my problem that day. And the brain says, this works. Kit Kat bars will do something for me, not to me, for me, that they don't do for the normal temperate eater. <clears throat> A Kit Kat bar will instantly, effortlessly change my perception of reality. I believe that it did that for everyone. It does not. When they eat candy, when they eat french fries, when they eat whatever they eat, it does not give them that effect. The effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes over me instantly and effortlessly when I eat the candy. That Kit Kat bar, that whatever, salami, corned beef, pastrami, whatever that is became an answer to my problem and was not the problem itself. The problem is the buildup of human emotion and the solution to the problem became the food. Now, if that's all that was a problem for me, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world that if I became scared or angry to eat candy. But unfortunately, there's another component here. We're going to talk again about this too. Now, there's the physical allergy, making it, excuse me, making it impossible for me to stop eating candy once I started. Now, follow me here. I eat the candy to get the effect. The effect makes me feel better instantly. 
That's good. The allergy makes it impossible for me to stop. Now, I eat another candy bar and another and another and another. So you see where I'm going here. So if I cannot eat candy because of the allergy and I cannot keep from eating candy because of the twist of the mind, I am powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. It begs the question, what if I could find a way to live where my mind doesn't lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly from eating a candy bar? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better? What if I could find a way to live where my emotional level is never above the danger zone, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion and the process of bringing the necessary power into the equation is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. This is about a recognition of the powerlessness of the condition and the solution being the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Why do we do steps? Is it so that we can, as sponsors, feel great that we've given you some homework assignment and now you're doing it? Sort of like a fraternity where they tell you to make a paddle or a whatever they tell you to make just for their own egos? Not at all. We are doing these things to affect a spiritual awakening to lower the level of these emotions. So food is never the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. It is never the problem. So when we look at our lives, we kept looking at food and weight as the problem. Now we're working steps, those of us who are, and we don't eat the food. The miracle of Overeaters Anonymous for me is not that I've lost 500 pounds. It's not that I have 17 years of abstinence. It's not that I haven't eaten cookies, candy, whatever it is, for 17 years. The miracle is I don't want to. I don't want to eat that stuff. I have no desire for it. And when the spiritual awakening is upon me, and my emotions are lowered because of the steps, my desire for these foods is non-existent. If you're fighting food, if you're fighting food and fighting the world, please grab somebody, get a sponsor, work the steps. If you have a sponsor, and you're fighting food, and you're fighting the world, something must change. If it doesn't, you will eat again. Because the pain of not eating for the compulsive overeater is too much to bear. The pain of not eating for the compulsive overeater in the world that we live in with the emotions and the people and the things that just don't do what we want them to do is excruciating. You will eat as a solution to the problem of the emotional buildup. You will eat because you seek a relief to that intenable pain that comes upon you 
when you're not eating. We can't take it anymore. And the pain and the shame of eating becomes preferable. Let's continue with the chapter. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, you know you're killing yourself, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. That when they say the truth and the false, that means we tell ourselves we're just going to have three Oreo cookies and put the rest away. Yeah, right, horse hockey. I've never eaten, I've never eaten any amount of cookies in my life that wasn't every cookie I could get my hands on. The only time in my life I ever ate one cookie was when one was the only one I could get my hands on. And you can bet your life that as soon as I got into where there were more cake, more cookies, I ate that too. <clears throat> Excuse me. So then their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. When they're not eating, they're restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. And what impunity means is indifference. After they have succumbed to the desire again, XXIX is 29 in Roman numerals, as many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. And you see how you've done with diets during your lifetime, and I see how I've done with diets during my lifetime, and it's not a very pretty picture. And there are people listening on this line right now and people sitting in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous meetings in 60 different countries that are dieting with group support. They're not doing the steps. They're not having a spiritual awakening as a result of anything. And they're dying and they're sitting right near us. We spend a lot of money in Overeaters Anonymous attracting new people in the door. And we should do that. That's fine. And we spend a lot of women and man hours trying to attract people. That's great. There are people sitting in the meeting right next to you dying of their untreated food addiction and we're hugging them to death. We're hugging them to death and we tell them, keep coming back, keep coming back, because we're afraid of confronting them in a loving way. Continuing. On the other hand, as strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. And what are the rules? The rules are the steps. The rules are the steps. Look, this is a simple way of life. If I can do it, anyone can. I am, not the sh- I am not the sharpest tool in the freaking shed. And if I can do this, I have to think you can too. If you're finding this hard to do, you're doing it wrong. I'm going to say that again. If you're really struggling with doing the steps, you're doing them wrong. <laughs> You're doing them in a way where you're not getting the guidance you need or you're seeing something that's not there or you're not seeing something that is there because this is not a hard thing to do. 
Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal, Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Faced with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change, spiritual awakening. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. I do not hold with those people who, who believe alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. So here it is again. This is groundbreaking. That it's, excuse me, it's not about your willpower. It's not about your mental control. I've had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests, so the, the important impo uh, appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Well, what was going on with these guys that had this business appointment to be settled favorably to them? What happened before the meeting that caused them to drink? Was it the alcohol? Absolutely not. What it was was the buildup of human emotion, the buildup of human emotion. Not long ago on this line, Larry Kay, also from Chicago, he did a beautiful, beautiful special edition on step 10. What is step 10? It is taking the emotions that build up during the day, during an issue, and you immediately deal with them by doing a step 10. The two most underutilized steps, two and ten. Absolutely, without question, the most underutilized steps, two and ten. I recommend highly going back and listening to Larry uh, do his rendition on special editions on step ten. It wasn't that long ago. It's, 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 it's last year. Okay. The class of... There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. They can't fight anymore, and that's where I was in my life. I didn't want to live in this world anymore. I didn't know how. It's a miracle I didn't take my own life. I don't have the onions to take a gun and, and put it in my mouth and pull the trigger. I don't own a gun. I'm not a violent person. But it took years to get that weight off. And I climbed the walls. The loneliness was unbelievable. I ran to every meeting on the north side of Chicago. I ran to meetings everywhere I could go. I did whatever I had to do, and I survived by the skin of my teeth. I've never worked as hard at anything as I have on my recovery. I'm going to be 62 years old in May. There were doctors that said I would be dead by the time I'm 30. And if I die today, I've had 17 years of emancipation. I've had freedom in my life for 17 years. I can at least say I lived until I died. Whereas in the food, I was dead before I was dead. It's not a life. 
the classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon, going on a diet for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions. Resolutions, funny because it was just New Year's, but never a decision. And a decision is step three. We're going to learn later on in Chapter 5, not today. We're going to learn that step three is a beginning and a decision. There, are, there is the type of man who is unwilling to admit he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand or his environment. There's the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, that he can take a drink without danger. There's the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are the types entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. I like to think I'm that group. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. I cannot eat pastrami, pizza. I cannot eat French fries. I cannot eat Kit Kat bars or chocolate-covered turtles with, and a multitude of other things without setting me off on the phenomenon of craving that we call the allergy of the body. This phenomenon, now he calls it a phenomenon because he doesn't really understand it himself, but he knows it's there. As we have suggested, maybe the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. You will never get rid of the allergy. Once you have it, you have it, that's it. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Put down the food I had to do. I had to I had put down the food I had to do. There's a sentence. I had to put down the food. That's better. I had to put down the food. And you probably do too. This immediately precipitates us into a seething cauldron of debate. Much has been written pro and con, but among physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. If you are a compulsive overeater, untreated by a spiritual awakening that you're not going to have unless you work the steps and put down the food, you are doomed. Now listen to me for just a minute, because we're all going to die. We can live until we go if we work these simple steps. And we can enter into the greatest way of life imaginable. Forget the fact that I've lost over 500 pounds. Who cares? You know what that gets me? That and a dollar will get me on the Devon Avenue bus, the 155, take you to Loyola Station. That's nothing. The part of this that's amazing are the people that I meet and the freedom that I have to live my life. And I can hold hands with God and he guides me and he protects me and he shows me his will if I'm just smart enough to be quiet and listen. I don't have to keep screaming at God about how big my problems are. I can tell my problems how big my God is. And I can live according to his will if I just work these steps. What is the solution? Top of 31 in Roman numerals. XXXI. 
Perhaps I can best answer this by relating one of my experiences. About one year prior to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage and seemed to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life and was only living, one might say, to drink. He frankly admitted and believed that for him there was no hope. And many of us have felt very hopeless and defeated. Many of us have contemplated death and suicide. Many of us have lived in that moribund, that moribund existence. Following the elimination of alcohol, there was found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange sensation. I knew the man by name and partly recognized his features, but there all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I talked with him for some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, and so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. That's Bill Wilson. Now we're going to talk about Hank Parkhurst, Hank P. When I knew him, Hank P. was a, a, one of the original 100. His story appeared in the first edition of the big book. He was very instrumental in, in Alcoholics Anonymous keeping the publication of the book to himself, but unfortunately he went back out into the alcohol and died drunk. When I need a mental uplift, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis and deciding his situation hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn determined to die. He was rescued by a searching party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had a talk with me in which he frankly stated he thought the treatment a waste of effort. Unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. His alcoholic problem was so complex and his depression so great that we felt his only hope would be through what we then called moral psychology, and we doubted if even that would have any effect. However, he did become sold on the ideas contained in this book. He has not had a drink for many years. I see him now and then, and he is as fine a specimen of manhood as one could wish to meet. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. William D. Silkworth, M.D. Now, in closing, I just want to again reiterate that if you have conceived of what we're talking about this morning, the powerless condition of the mind and the body, that the mind is searching for a relief from that intenable pain that human emotion brings about, that you will never be able to beat that unless you work the steps. And the physical allergy is immutable. You will never be absent of it. If you believe yourself powerless over food and that your life is unmanageable, you have taken step one this morning. Thank you for everything. Thank you for letting me share and getting the year off. I hope that this was helpful, and with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you so much, Harlan, for such a beautiful presentation this morning and uh, development of the doctor's opinion. Thank you very, very much for your service. Harlan's contact information will be given out at the conclusion of this recording. Please stay tuned for that. And we're going to transition now to questions, questions that you want to 
uh, ask of Harlan. This is a great opportunity to do so by pressing star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Katie G. from Boston. Hi, Katie. Hold on one second. Who else? Is that Hannah? Hannah. Hannah. Anna. Anna. Got it. Okay, who else? Jump in. The water's warm here. Great opportunity. Eve. Rhonda from New York. Rhonda? Yes. Okay. And Dan who? Dan from Boston. Who from Boston? Eve. Okay, excellent. All right, so let's start with Katie G, please. Hi, Liz. Katie, can you hear me? Yes, mm-hmm. go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> uh, good morning, Harlan, and good morning, everyone. It's Katie G, Compulsive Overeater, and I'm sick and bulimic. And um, what a privilege to hear you. I have the privilege of meeting you, and just um, really wonderful, heartfelt, and um, very, very thorough um, description of um, the doctor's opinion and very grateful to him um, and just your, you know, description of the allergy. And I guess my question is, and you answered it, but I'm just going to ask it again because I'm really a hard-headed nut to crack. And um, mm-hmm. I've been in the rooms for 11 years. And my experience, Harlan, is that, you know, I'm very, I'm a good controller very black and white um, and, like, learning to live in the gray, which is very uncomfortable. But I guess, like, with the food and then I've also, as I talk about, um, struggled with um, exercise addiction and other things that, you know, there's been a refinement in my allergy. It's almost like the more aspirin I get, the more allergic I get. (laughs) Like, I just feel like, oh, my gosh, another layer. So I guess my question is, could you speak to that and – what has helped you and what you tell sponsees and people that you're working with just to stay grounded in step one and the powerlessness and to be open that like new things can come into place um, and a, that refinement. Um, and with that, I pass. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. That's a very, very good question. And, and what we didn't have time to really look at this morning is the progressive nature of this illness. And that's really the, the manifestation of the progressiveness. As I age and as I live my life, I find that unlike alcohol, unlike drugs, unlike gambling or what have, what have you, I must adjust from time to time the amount of food that I'm eating or the sorts of food that I'm eating, certain foods that were completely abstinent in, in, in a certain amount, say five years ago, 10 years ago, I would put on weight in leaps and bounds if I consumed them now. And that is why I must have input from a nutritionist. I do weigh myself once a week. I have that accountability once a week. I get on the scale. I write down the number. Sometimes I'm up a little bit. Sometimes I'm down a little bit. Sometimes I'm the same. But when there are patterns of weight gain or when there is, is any type of situation that, that gets my attention, I must at that point review with someone that's objective, what am I eating? And how much of it am I eating? And anytime there's a food that I'm sitting here and I just can't wait to get my hands on it again, 
that is a red light for me. That is a stop, look, and listen. Because my relationship with food must be identical to my relationship with the gasoline in my car. The gasoline in my auto is put in there to give me the ability to drive the car around. And this is the same thing with food. If I'm coveting food, if I'm obsessing about a certain thing, it probably has to go. It definitely has to go. So that's, that's a very good question. And from time to time, I need to review that. And the only way I have to do that is with the input of somebody who's objective. Because a solitary self-appraisal for me, when it comes to food, is, is going to prove useless. But thank you for the question. It's a good one. Thanks, Katie G. Anna M., your turn. Anna, star one to unmute. Can you hear me now? You're going to need to speak up, please. Can you now? Okay. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. And I am from Toronto. Harlan, thank you so much. You put a smile on my face with the Yiddish expressions and proverbs. Thank you so much. I didn't, I just wanted to keep on listening. And my question is today, when you talk about your friends going with them to a buffet, um, I can probably do the same thing. I can eat like a compulsive overeater, and then I can stop. So uh, I'm struggling to really, you know, to accept the step number one in this respect. But in the meantime, I know that I was 200 pounds uh, when I came into the program, and my normal weight is probably 140, according to my weight. Uh, so this is my question number one. Uh, and the second part of the question, you are talking about working the steps. I never did the properly step four or five, and I'm just keep on thinking, uh, when I have to do amends, I just can't think about who did it hurt. And uh, so that that's basically it. This is two parts of my questions. Okay. Thank you, Anna. And, um, yeah, the Yiddish just kind of comes out every once in a while, but that's how I was raised. But anyway, Anna, you've got to do the steps, and you unless you do, you're not going to be able to put down the food. There's no other known method of putting down the food and working the steps and having a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. What I would strongly suggest is getting a sponsor. There are many, many wonderful sponsors on Vision for You. I don't know what the sponsorship or the meetings are like in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I've done big book studies a lot of different places, but one of them is not Toronto, so I don't know what the fellowship is like up there. But there are people in the fellowship that will walk you through this and if you walk through it, you will have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, and you will see how you harm people and what the nature of your part in it is. It will be shown to you through the inventory process. I promise you, I promise you more will be revealed. But thank you. Thanks, Anna, for your question. Rhonda I, your turn. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay, thank you so much, Harlan, and thanks for everyone for being on the line. Um, I just have two quick questions. Um, Harlan, is, if there is a point where someone is not able to sponsor someone, do you suggest that um, we take a person or I take the person through the doctor's opinion 
the way that you have done. That's my first question. And my second question, and again, I don't know if this affects other people, but um, I take a series of medications, and I hadn't really thought about it, but I have been developing some nighttime um, cravings and after doing step tens and all that. And I'm wondering if that's ever been your experience or anyone you sponsor where looking into the fact that perhaps certain medications cause an actual physiological craving. So if a person is abstinent and staying away from alcoholic foods, if that plays any kind of role or any suggestions uh, on that. Thank okay. You. It's, it's definitely two questions. I don't know how else to take anyone through the doctor's opinion than the way I just did. So mm-hmm. I don't understand that the fact that you can't sponsor a person. I don't understand that part of it. But the only way to take them through is to read it through with them and do what I did in my opinion. Now, the other part of your question, Rhonda, is this. I don't think that I'm qualified to answer a question of what medicines will do or not do. I'm not a doctor, and I don't play one on TV. But here's what I can tell you. The craving for food at night is probably more a result of unmade amends, undealt with anger, undealt with fear. Before the big book was written, Sam Shoemaker, who was the Episcopal minister who ran the um, cavalry mission in New York City, a very good friend of Bill, he had a tremendous influence on Bill, he was in charge of the Oxford group in New York, and he knew Bill, he knew Ebby, he knew Seber Graves, he knew Roland, he knew these guys. He stated that there were four impediments to God, four impediments. The first one being a resentment that you will not let go of. Look at that first. Number two, a secret that you will not tell. A vicarious pleasure, lying, stealing, gossiping, cheating, that you will not give up. And last, an amends or a restitution that you will not make. So when you want to look at why you have night cravings, I wouldn't know how to advise you on medicine. I'm not a doctor. I wouldn't know how to to even deal with that. But if I'm having night cravings, it means I'm probably not doing my 10 steps through the day. There's never a day when I don't have 10 steps. There's never a day when I don't have anger come up, selfishness come up, dishonesty come up, fear come up. My God, I'm a human being. Are you doing your 10 steps? Are you doing your nightly review in step 11? Are you doing your daytime when we, awake, when we awaken? Are you doing your morning 11 steps? So more often than not, that is the culprit rather than anything physiological as I see it. So that's the only answer I have. As far as chemicals or medicines causing a craving, I couldn't speak to that. I, I, I wouldn't be qualified, but thanks for your question. Thank you, Rhonda. Dan C., your turn. Hi. Uh, thanks so much for your talk today. I really appreciate it, and I can really tell the, the passion and energy in your voice and your story. And I had a question which I was hoping you could uh, touch on and maybe explore a little bit uh, for those people who might see that uh, well, when it was hard, or if you're working this and it's too hard, you're not working it right, 
versus mm-hmm. what often people say is this is the hardest thing I've ever had to work on as, you know, when people are speaking about being recovered for 10 years that, you know, I don't, I work mm-hmm. on this harder than anything else. So mm-hmm. I was hoping that you could clear that up so people uh, maybe don't see a discrepancy there, but I, but I really enjoyed it and thank you so much. Uh, okay, thank you. Thank you for your question, Dan, and, and that's a good one. It's a good question, too. When you find that you're getting to gut-wrenching truth, that's not what I'm talking about. But when I see people, and they're totally confused by this process, and they're hearing this thing from this person or that thing from that person, and they just give up, that means that they're not really going to a sponsor that's big book-oriented. This should not be a very hard process at all. This is not a difficult process. Let's take a look at at what we have here. The steps are conveniently divided into four sections. There's admission, step one. There's submission, two through seven. There's restitution, eight and nine. And then there's construction, uh, 10, 11, and 12. It's very simple. We're powerless over food. Okay? You either believe that, or you don't. You hear people all the time, they say, well, I'm working on step one in OA. You don't work on step one in OA. You work on step one at McDonald's. You work on step one at the convenience store. You work on step one when you're in the bathroom and you can't get to the Pepto-Bismol, you can't get to the K-O-Pectate or the, the, the Ammonium fast enough because you've eaten so much food, it's coming out of you from both ends. You work on step one when the morning of the wedding, you can't put your clothes on because they're too tight, they don't fit. That's, that, that's step one. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And there's people running around with gods in their head that I'd be scared to death of. They have gods in their head from what I've understood over the years and in me that is their adversary. They have never had a sponsor guide them through formulating a power greater than themselves that they're on friendly terms with. Why would I want to do all this work if I know God's just going to kick my butt? And step three is a very simple step. All step three really is, is I'm agreeing to do four through twelve. Four through twelve. For. It shouldn't take more than a couple of hours. You see people, they're working at it for days and weeks and months and years. What are you nuts? What are you nuts? It's, this is not a long process. My God, stop waiting to do it perfectly and do it. If you miss something, that's why we have 10. Don't worry about it. Get the damn thing done. Five, you sit down with somebody. They point. They help you point out your part. Six, are you ready to have these defects removed? Do you want to keep lying? Do you want to keep stealing? Do you want to keep doing all these things? Because if you do, you're going to eat. Those are your choices. Step seven, ask God to remove them humbly. Eight and nine, make the list. Go about. Make amends. If you have step, if you have difficulty in four, or you have difficulty in nine. You really have difficulty in two. Everything will come back to two. Once you put the food down, two is now your foundation. It's your base that you're going to build everything on. You're struggling in four, you're struggling in two. You're struggling in nine, you're struggling in two. 
and 10, 11, and 12 daily. Ten, step 10 is not something we do once a day or once every couple of days. It goes throughout the day. That's why the nighttime portion of step 11 is first, because they assume you've been doing 10 steps all day. And you hear a lot of narishkeit. Narishkeit is a Jewish word for foolishness. They're writing on their step 10. You can write on it, but that's not the instruction in the big book. There's no writing involved in step 10. There's no writing involved in step 11. None. Show me in the big book where it says this is what you write down. There's nothing in there about that. Step 12. You see people in these rooms for years. They're not identifying as sponsors. You've been here for years. Why aren't you sponsoring? If you don't have a spiritual awakening, what are you doing? It's not a difficult process. You know what you have to have, Dan, to make it easier? A desire to do it. My confusion is equal to what my ego does not want me to see. It's really a simple process. And with that, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll end this question. Thanks. Thank you, Dan C. Eve. Thank you, Harlan, for your service. Um, my question was related to what you just answered. I am in step four, and I have been writing for months. And I can find it quite uncomfortable. My throat catches, and I have to breathe through it And in order to continue writing. And this is a, I've been told to be very thorough, and I have. There's thoroughness and there's ridiculousness. I, I'm asking what your, because you said it wasn't hard, and it, no. it is. <laughs> Do you have a sincere desire to get past step four? Absolutely. I want to. Step four a shouldn't take more than a couple of hours. Column one, who or what do you resent? Column two, why do you resent it or them? Column three, what basic instinct is affected? Column four, what did you do to set this going? How character defects were brought to the surface? Anything hard there? I've gone to, I'm in my, my turnarounds. I'm, but what I do you mean a turnaround? I don't know what I mean, means. I mean, I'm in that last column, and I've already written two five-subject notebooks filling up those you're, that last you're, you're column. Over, way overdoing it. You're way overdoing it. Way overdoing it. This whole process shouldn't take more than an hour or two to do step four. Way over. You've got to keep moving. You've got to keep the process going. We're not writing a novel here. Column four, what did you do to set the ball in motion, if anything, and what character defects were brought to the surface? Next, next, and next. It's a very simple process. Then the fear inventory. Column one, who or what do you fear? Column two, why do you fear it? Column three, what character defects are brought to the surface? Column four, what did you do to bring the fear about and what Character defects were brought to the surface. Sex inventory. Who did you hurt? Column two. What did you do to them or not do? Column three. What basic instincts are affected? Column four. What defects of character cause you to take or omit the action in column two? Column five, which is something we've never had before. What should you have done instead? Anything hard there? No, I, I haven't even started the fear or sex. My God in heaven, get yourself a sponsor. 
and have somebody take you through the big book, and it should be done in two hours. You are certain to eat again if you are a compulsive overeater, if you linger in that step. It is not a possibility you're going to eat again. It's a certainty. Because the pain of not eating is too excruciating. You've got to move through faster, much faster, much faster. If I can help you, I will help you. There are hundreds of people on these lines and in the world that will help you. It absolutely shouldn't take anything close to what you're describing. Thank you, Eve. Thank you. Thank you, Eve, for that question. Who else has a question for Harlan this morning? Great opportunity. Hi, Kathy Kay. Kathy Kay. Suji. Suji. Tina G. Tina G. Am I hearing Tina? Yes, Tina D. Okay, Tina D. Anyone else? Denise. Denise. Judy K. Judy K. How are you with time, Harlan? I'm good, but you can tell Judy I'm not coming to Wisconsin to do the thing. Okay, Judy, he's not coming to Wisconsin to do the thing. The Bible study. Okay. <laughs> Uh, anyone else with a question? <laughs> Jen R. in Maryland. Jen R. Okay. Cassie K., go to it. Thank you, Laura, for your service, and thank you, Harlan. It was great to hear you again today. Thank you, Kathy. Good to hear your voice, too. Yeah. I, um, you know, I continue to struggle with uh, people I start to sponsor who have the best intentions in the world um, but do not stay abstinent. And um, <clears throat> you sound so convincing, but somehow I'm not uh, conveying the importance of putting down the food. And I wondered if you have any suggestions or, is it, or do I need to let them go, which I don't. Mm-hmm. You need to let them go according to Chapter 7 and according to everything that is that is anything I've experienced. I've been in these rooms uh, in February. It'll be 37 years, I believe, that I've been in these rooms. And here's what I know. There are many, many people who call me for sponsorship, and they say, I want what you have. Oh, I want what you have so much. You are this. You are that. And then I give them some work to do, and I never hear from them again. That has nothing to do with you. Kathy, from what I've heard of you over the long period of time I've been on vision, your recovery is wonderful. But not everybody is going to want recovery. They want a food plan that they maybe can stick to, but they can't, and then they fade away. This is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And there is a timing here. It may not be their time. And that has nothing to do with you. Are you staying abstinent? Of course, yes. Then that's the only result that we really live with. Yeah. We want them to get it. I want every person that I sponsor to recover. I have no reason on God's earth not to want that. But the reality of it is they're not going to. They may not be ready. And here's the bottom line, and then I'll let you go, Kathy. It's good to hear you. Kathy, if if they want to recover... You can't say the wrong thing. If they don't want to recover, you can't say the right thing. (laughs) 
that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. You, you just you know just do the best you can. Many are called, few are chosen. That's yeah. just just the reality of the situation. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks, Kathy. Thanks, Holly. Thank you, Kathy K. Sue G. Hi, Helen. Um, good to hear Hi, you, Helen. actually. I haven't been in the program that long, provision for you. Um, I'd like to have you go a little over the moral psychology, what then called moral psychology, and then at the very end it says, however, he was sold on the ideas contained in this book. Um, what would moral psychology be now? Um, Spiritual awakening. And the ideas contained in this book are the steps. Yes. So spiritual awakening, like you right. said, you've had some people call God so many weird things. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier something about um, of your God. May I ask what your God is? Well, I'll give you a couple of things, but remember, I'm going to predicate this by saying that this is my opinion, my reality, my situation, not not yes. anyone else's. Okay. I'm going to give you what I know about God, I'm going to give you what I believe about God, and I'm going to give you something else, just very quickly. Number one, these are the two things I know about God. There is one, and it's not me. Number two, this is what I believe about God. God is very powerful. He is very personal, and he's perfect. Now, some of you may be bristling and say, if God's so perfect, why was there a Holocaust? If God's so perfect, why did I get raped? Why did I get mocked? Why did I, why my child? Why my parents? Why my brother, my sister? I don't have explanations for a lot of that stuff. I don't. I don't know why little babies die of cancer. I do not, I have no idea why people shoot one another or why people do those things. I don't know. But what I do know about God is he didn't put a bunch of robots on this earth. He put a bunch of human beings with free will on this earth. And sometimes people do terrible things. But he is perfect. He is powerful. And he is personal to me. And when I call him, he is there for me. But I'm going to give you another definition of God that I hope you will take with you. God is not what I pray to. God is not what I believe. God is that thing that I spend the most time thinking about and the most time working toward every day. I can sit here and pray and pray and read scriptures and read this and meditate, and all day long I'm thinking about money, 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 money. Then money is my God. If I'm thinking about girls, 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 then girls are my God, or whatever that may be. So I have to make sure that every single day I think about God more than I think about anything else. And, yeah, when I I drive a car and I run a business and I own my own home and I have a dog and I have friends and we like to yak on the phone, yeah, that's all true. I love college football and I love, you know, all these other things. Yes, I, I have a life too. But I better make sure that what I'm doing every day centers around God. And when I work the steps and I sponsor and I am sponsored, God becomes the centrifuge of my life. He becomes the center of my life. Thanks for the question, Sue. Thank you, Helen. 
Thanks, Sue. Sarah W., your turn. Good morning. Thank you, Leah, for your service. Good morning, Holland. I really appreciated hearing you share. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the hard drinker or the periodic, uh, periodic more. I think uh, uh, you, you brought up a little bit about that, but I was thinking, you know, when you were talking about um, the allergy, and let's say you are eating your Kit Kat, and this particular time maybe, um, maybe you eat four. And then you go to bed and you think, well, you know, maybe I really don't have a problem with that. I think many people have this issue. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering how you would help somebody that, you know, kind of gets into that mindset. This time it didn't happen, so maybe that's not really true for me. What is your pattern? Maybe you didn't eat any more Kit Kat bars. I, I would say that eating four Kit Kat bars is, is quite abnormal. Most normal eaters wouldn't eat four four Kit Kat bars. They would eat a half of one or one, and they're done. Eating two and three and four candy bars, that's abnormal right there. But what is your pattern? And I'm going to say this, too. There are a lot of people in Overeaters Anonymous that are non-compulsive overeaters. There are people that are not compulsive overeaters that are on this line or that in the rooms of, the, of OA. There are people who became convinced that if they lost 10 pounds, 15 pounds, that their life would be much better. So they came into Overeaters Anonymous. And they are the type of people that can make three outreach calls a day, call in their food, and go to three meetings a week, and they are perfectly abstinent. And they present really well with thin bodies, and they, they present really well. They look very put together. They look great. And they start telling the compulsive overeater, get a food plan, go to three meetings a week, work the tools, make three outreach calls a day, and you'll be abstinent. And the compulsive overeater can't do that because they're not working the steps. And the non-compulsive overeater says, well, it works for me. You must, not be, you must not want it enough. You must not be ready. And the compulsive overeater feels that OA failed them. There are non-compulsive overeaters in OA. That's a reality. If you're not a compulsive overeater, or you are, it's not up to me to judge or to say. But if you think you are a normal eater, Sarah, that, you know, maybe this isn't the thing, try some controlled eating. Try it more than once. Eat some Kit Kat bars. Stop abruptly. See how that works for you. If you're not, then you're not. If you are, then we're here for you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Tina D., your turn. Um, my question is, how do you, um, well, I, I agree with everything you say. I have low vision and I listen every day. Um, but when I go to in-person meetings, I feel very frustrated when groups are off course and they're talking about writing for months and whatever. Um, and I, whenever I try to share about vision, I feel like an evangelist. And, and then I feel very judgmental of people who, who won't. Um, who will give it a try. And so I guess my, my question is how do I stop being so judgy and, and, you know, and like work with people with compassion instead of judgment? Okay. Well, first of all, Tina, that's a very, very good question um, because many of us, especially in the era that we live in today, move around quite a bit. 
when I was a little kid, everybody stayed put, you know, our neighbors were our neighbors, and nobody moved around, you know, like they do today. Sometimes you find yourself living in a different city as I am. I, I lived my whole life in Chicago, and then through a series of circumstances, I lived in Eugene, Oregon for nine years, where there was no OA when I was there. So I had to go to AA meetings, open meetings, and then I moved here to Scottsdale, Arizona. And doesn't it always seem that the people are doing it wrong when you move? Doesn't it always seem that way? But anyway, Tina, here's what I can tell you. You keep bringing yourself and your big book to the meeting. Let them see you not only carrying a big book, but let them see what vision for you or what the big book is doing for you. And they will want what you have. A fellowship will spring up around you. You just keep going to the meeting and you don't worry about anything else. And it is not up to me to decide who's doing it wrong or who's doing it right or whatever it is. We, if we do it out of the big book, we will recover. If we don't, we, we may not. That's the bottom line for me. And don't worry about whether they're doing it wrong. It's, it, we cannot exercise that kind of judgment and stay out of the food. I can be right or I can be happy. God bless them. They're in the meeting. They're doing something. They're coming. They're there. Eventually, if you keep bringing yourself to those meetings, they'll see what you have, and hopefully, if it's their time and if it's their destiny, they will want it. Beyond that, we cannot control who does what, who knows what, who says what. It's not up to our control. But thank you for the question, Tina. You just keep bringing your big book to that meeting, and you keep going back to it. You may be the only edition of the big book they will ever read. Thanks, <clears throat> Denise. Hi, this is Denise from East Tennessee. And hi, I, I think, hi, Harlan. I, I always love uh, hearing you. Um, okay, I think you said in in the history of your experience that you were in L.A. and then you went back out? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I came in in 79. Okay. I went back out in 82. I came back okay. in 86. You know, yeah. Okay. Okay, so my question is, when you were in L.A. and then went back out, what was it that you may have done wrong, and I guess specifically regarding step one, because that's what you kind of dwelled on today, mm-hmm. Um I, I have a huge pull, social and familial, that that I I don't know if I've just not accepted the fact that I have an allergy or what, but what was your experience when you went back out? Thank you. I'm a lazy bum, and I wanted to die, and I saw a bunch of people sitting in the room of Overeaters Anonymous, and they had cars that were newer than mine. And they were they the girls were kissing boys, not in the meeting, but they were married. They they had been on dates. I went on my first date with a girl when I was thirty five years old. And the boys had kissed girls and I said, Well, if I had kissed girls, I wouldn't be this way. And if I had money, I wouldn't be this way. And I was immature and I wasn't ready yet, even though I was three, four hundred pounds, whatever I was at the time, because I was not aware of page 98 with the priorities, job or no job, wife or no wife. We simply do not recover while we put earthly things above God. I was not ready. I was not mature enough. I wasn't really hearing. I could go on a whole thing on this, too. 
But what I had to see was page 58. If you want what we have, what is it we have? We have people that are not eating compulsively? Yeah, that's right. But we also have people that are not eating compulsively, and what's more important is that they are doing so happily, that they are doing so in a manner that is effortless. And you're willing to go to any lengths to get it. I wasn't willing to go to any lengths to get it. Denise, I wanted somebody to give me this because I felt I deserved it. I wasn't willing to do the work. It says then, then you are ready to take certain steps. I had to be beat down. Because I am not by my nature, Denise, a hard worker. I'm a lazy bum. And if you give me an inch, I'll take a mile. And I had to say, I can't buy this. I can't get this by osmos- or osmosis. When I say osmosis, you don't get this just sitting on a, in a chair in a meeting. You have to do the work. And that's, what I, that's the transition that I had to come through. I had to stop being a spoiled, lazy brat. And that's what I had to do. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Denise. And our final question this morning comes from Judy Kay. No, Judy, I'm not coming to Door County, Wisconsin. Hi, Holland. I'm still hanging on hopes that you'll come to Wisconsin. My name is Judy Kay. I'm a compulsive reader. I want to jump over the moon. We'll probably have the same uh, chance. But anyway, go on. You know I love you. That's why I tease you. You know that. Yes, Helen. Thank you. Thank you for your awesome share this morning. I was intrigued by a comment you made uh, in the question and answer period that you said there was no writing in the tenth step. No. So how were you? So you never do writing. I, I'm assuming with the tenth step. So will you explain what you do with the tenth step and when you do it and how often you do it? Uh, I can and I will, but I also, me and my friend Louisa did one, if you want a review of this, Larry Kay just did one on Step 10, and me and Louisa did one on Step 10 a couple of three years ago, but if you look very quickly at page 84, there's nothing in there that says you write. Let's take a look at what it says. It says, it says, um, continue, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) hold on, okay. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. So if I look at selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, what does it tell me to do? What step am I really dealing with? I'm dealing with step four, right? Now, it says when these things crop up. It doesn't say if. It says when. We ask God at once to remove them. Now, what step did I also use to ask God to remove my defects? Six and seven. So I'm doing a fourth, six. Seven, we discuss them with someone immediately, step five. Doesn't say we discuss it with them tomorrow. Doesn't say we discuss it with them in an hour or two. We discuss it with someone immediately. That's why I have to develop my God squad. I have to develop people that I can call. My sponsor is John Kay in Los Angeles. If I had to burden him with every time I had a 10-step call, uh, we'd be on the phone quite a bit. 
but I have a God squad. If I have to, I call them, absolutely. That's step five. And make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone, steps eight and nine. There's nothing in there so far about any writing, is there? Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. Where is the instruction in there to write anything? No instruction there whatsoever to write anything. Now, if you want to write on this, it's not wrong. It's not bad. It's not like you're going to be, you know, uh, you're going to eat Milky Way bars or anything. But it, the, the, the instruction to the step is very clear. There's no writing in there whatsoever. None. So I don't know where this, came, where this comes from, but you, you pick up the phone. You ask God to remove the defects. Now, I have a little harmonism that I use with my sponsees, and I ask them a question. Why should we assume God has removed your defects of character when you ask him to? And they'll say, because he loves me. And I'll say, that's right, because he loves you. It's a verbal action. It's a, it's a silent and verbal action. There's nothing in there about writing at all. And I love you, Judy, but I'm not coming to Door County to do a big book study. It's too hard to get to. Okay, are you there? No, I'm here. Thanks, Judy. Um, okay. And my apologies are actually our final question. Thanks, Judy. Actually, okay. our final question comes from Jen R. Okay, Jen. Jen, you still there? Uh, did you call Jen R? Yep. Yeah. My yeah. Oh, great. I'm, oh, I'm so glad I got in. Um, I guess I'm, I I have a tendency to simplify things, and hopefully this isn't into thinking instead of into action. But um, it seems to me that um, with regards to the food, I put down the food, but God keeps the food down as long as I'm doing the 12 steps. Is that accurate, or have I oversimplified it past accuracy? Is it working for you? Yes. Case closed. The defense rests. There's no reason to gesticulate about it anymore. There's no reason to philosophize it or analyze it. It's working for you, Jen. And as long as it's working, we don't, we don't worry about it. Okay? It's working. And I think you're 100% right on. You put the food down, God keeps it down in 2 through 12. I love it. No reason to analyze it any more than that. We don't want to overthink anything. Thank you, Jen, for the question. Thanks to everybody who asked questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Harlan, as always, for your thorough presentation of the doctor's opinion and for all your efforts in sharing your personal experience as you brought to life those pages for us this morning. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very, very much. And I'm going to close from page 164, the way we always do here on A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. 
Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.